Good evening, Preston City Bible Church. As always, we are here to receive a challenge from God's Word to stand against the tide of our times, of our culture, inasmuch as our culture tends away from the things of God, from the worship of God, from the works of God that He would do through us. The Apostle tells Timothy in his swan song in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter of Paul's writing that we have in Scripture before he was beheaded by the Roman Empire. He says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And Paul challenges him on this life approach with the last words we have from Paul in a personal letter to an individual that we all benefit from, when he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The words, the final words of the Apostle Paul about Timothy's ministry and all those who will come after Timothy, really, in uh, in opposition to the decline of the cultures around us, of the civilization. This is a hard prescription because we are herd animals in a sense. We human beings are not animals. Uh, we're above the animals, but we are like racehorses spurred on by those to our left and right. Are we running? Okay, let's run. That's a race. Are we going left? Well, everybody seems to be going left. Let's go left. Are we going right? Let's go right. And we follow the crowd. There is a spirit of rebelliousness in all of our sin natures that also tells us I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing or especially what the authority says. I'll do what I'll do and they can have their generation. I'll have my generation. This is my generation. And we lose our footing on wisdom and righteousness because we're just chasing the impulses of our sin nature. And whether you're following the culture's, the culture as it follows God's enemy off a cliff, or whether you're following your sin nature as it follows God's enemy off a cliff, uh, you're a failure. And the prescription is we stand fast with God's word and we don't do what the world does because the world does it. We do what God says so that we're useful to Him on, in the account of the world for their sake, for their edification, for their knowledge of God, for their salvation, eternal life. It's a high calling to stand against the culture and the world. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. I was offer you that, afford that time for you because I know that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and as much as you are, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And the Holy Spirit lives in you to sanctify you, to set you apart to God, to edify you, and to mature you in Christ to set you up for the works that God has prepared for you. And that requires a, he a healthy diet in God's Word, but it's through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So right, right adjustment to the Spirit of God is always in a status of being cleansed of our sins. So I always give you that moment of silent prayer. If you need to confess any known sins to God, let's pray. Father, we pause to glorify and praise you tonight for bringing us together to know you on your terms. We bless you, Father, for eternal life and the taste of it we have now as we consider who you are through what you've said. Glorify yourself as we study the word tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We pick it up in Isaiah chapter 26, um, verses 1 through 6, the song so-called of the strong city. And we're in this portion. We looked last time in verses 25, 25 verses 6 through 12 at the center of the big, little, the big 
structure of 24 through chapters 24 through 27, we looked at this one little seven verse nugget of glory in Zion. And uh, if you can see the outline above, maybe you can track through. Let's just get a running start and see where we've been. In the New American Standard in Isaiah 24, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants, and the people will be like the priest, the servant like the the master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers and the world fades and withers and the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. And the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned. Few men are left. This is, understand, a prediction in Isaiah's day of its future to Isaiah's time. 2,700 years later, it's future to our time. These things have never transpired. But it, you could hear it's like worldwide devastation for wickedness on planet Earth. It sounds like Genesis 6. It sounds like as in the days of Noah, which we have in prophecy of the future. The new vine mourns, the wine decays, the merry heart is verse 7. If you're tracking, we're in the first little chunk of 24, 1 through 12. The merry-hearted sigh, the gaiety of tambourine ceases, the noise of reveler stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Beer is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruins. And this is the first image you have of the city, the city. And it's the city that is under God's wrath because you have a tale of two cities in the little apocalypse, the city of God and the city of man in rebellion against God. A story that we've been reading beginning in Genesis uh, chapter 11 with the city, Babel, Babel, which um, we call Babylon because of later translation, but in Hebrew, it's always Babel. It's always the same place. The headquarters of the future one world government of Antichrist, Babylon. But I speak metaphorically, the city of man in his opposition to God. But that's verses 1 through 12. And then in 24, 13, which we're now in B, B1 in the little outline, desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruin. So verse 13, for thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over, that theme of gleanings. And now the song of the world remnant in verse, 20, verse 14, they raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the coastlands of the sea. Now, now here's the other theme coming in, devastation on the city of man across the entire, entirety of God's earth for man's rebellion, but then all the nations somehow in remnant glorifying God and praising him in the aftermath. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. And now there's a shift, and you can see it in the outline in verses 16b through 20, the overthrow of the sinful world, back to the, the pain. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, the treacherous deal very treacherously, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake and the earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. It totters like a shack for its transgressions heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. And now in our little outline, we move to the waiting world in verses 21 through 23. And notice the theme that changes. So it will happen in that day, Isaiah twenty four twenty one, that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. This is the answer to Habakkuk. How long, O Lord, how long are you going to let wickedness reign? We have been taught by the Lord Jesus to pray to deliver us from the evil one. Okay, so Father, deliver us from the evil one. Here it is. And 21 through 23, they'll be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. They'll be confined in prison. And after many days, they'll be punished echoing material in Revelation 20. Then the, earth, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. 
And so that is what we're anticipating. That's what the world wants. That's uh, Romans chapter 8, where the groaning of the earth longs for its freedom from the corruption. And now we move to the song of the ruined city in 25, 1 through 5. Oh, Lord, you're my God. I will exalt you. I'll give thanks to your name. For you've worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Every once in a while in this apocalypse, in this dark uh, revelation of God's judgment on the earth dwellers in what we call later is, through Revelation is called the tribulation, Jacob's trouble. In this time, there, there are punctuated moments of glory and exaltation, which you also have in the Bible. In Revelation, when uh, we're having the chronological depiction in Revelation 6 through 19, there are flashes up into heaven where you get to see what's going on in heaven and the glory of God and the praise of him while there is tribulation on the earth below. And so everyone, once in a while, I just want to point that out in this little apocalypse that happens like in 25, 1. But now we're back to tribulation in verse 2. For you've made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a palace of strangers is a city of no more. It will never be rebuilt. Back to that city of man under God's wrath. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Now, now, after wrath comes the remnant of the nations that glorify God. A strong city in uh, verse 4. Uh, verse 3, a strong city will glorify you, strong people will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will revere you, for you've been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, from the breath of the ruthless, is, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat and a drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens, like heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. So you have God's wrath, and in that wrath, the remnant is saved and delivered and brought into um, the protection of God, um, where all the nations will glorify him. So all the nations are being subdued and destroyed, and yet all the nations in remnant will glorify and praise him. And those two themes are coming together. That's the song of the ruined city. And then last time we looked in 25, 6 through 12 at Mount Zion, the glory of the coming kingdom. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Which peoples? All peoples. What are peoples? Ethnic groups. All the peoples of the earth, all the nations, synonymous goyim and, um, and um, uh, this word, am, amim, the peoples. The Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of the armies, will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And you didn't hear it, but it's oily food. That's that beef brisket part that we talked about last time. So it's a, a lavish banquet of extremely rich food and drink. And on this mountain, he will swallow up. Now, what's he going to eat? What is God's portion in this uh, banquet, this mag majestic feast as a portrayal of the kingdom? You can see it's, it's poetic, the way this kingdom is being described. On this mountain, that's Zion, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. What veil are we talking about? He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He'll remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord, now judgment on those that are opposed to God's people. This is God protecting and providing for his people his hand will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place. And now, I was asked the other day by one of my children, can you show me some interesting places in the Bible that sound very bizarre and, um, and have strange imagery? Well, this one comes to mind. Moab will be as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. He will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. Remember the great theme, arrogance is going to be squashed and humility is going to be exalted. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he'll bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. And we're going to hear that echoed again at the end of 26, 1 through 6, where we are tonight, the song of the strong city. So we had the song of the ruined city in 25, 1 through 5. We had the rejoicing in the kingdom on Mount Zion with the great banquet in 25, 6 through 12. And that brings us tonight to 26, 1 through 6. 
And what I mean to do in reading this with you like this, my intention is to show you it's extremely imagery-based, it's poetic, it's, it's designed to, to, to help, help you think through um, some of these great themes with these kinds of images, and it is not as obviously sequential and, um, and chronological as the book of Revelation. By God's design, he does it in this poetic, this epic poetry chunk of Isaiah 24 through 27, where we're about, uh, we're, we're on the, the downhill, we're, we're crossing the halfway mark. And 26, 1 through 6, my New American Standard says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And what's the song? We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind, which we just sang, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low, he lays it low to the ground, he casts it to the dust. Echoing exactly what he says in chapter 25, verse 12. The foot will trample it, the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. I want you to see this theme that keeps happening. You have the good news of God's deliverance for God's people. And what that means, after a little bit of reflection on that, in the bad news for those opposing or oppressing God's people. It's the good news of deliverance that has to come about through the bad news of his wrath against the earth dwellers. And that's part of the package. Remember this great theme of biblical prophecy and divine revelation. The theme is that when you see the, the, the heavy hand of God's wrath, when you see his judgment on his enemies, look for his deliverance of his people. Look for the other side of the coin. One way to illustrate this is the word yoresh, I believe, is yoresh, to inherit in Hebrew. It has a dual meaning, and you have to read it in context to see what he means. The people coming to the land are yoresh, they're inheriting it. The people leaving the land are yoresh, they are being dispossessed from it. And there is no uh, thriving for Israel and Judah in the uh, the land of Simeon, in Ephraim, in Dan, and all the places that God gave them in the Joshua conquest without the removal of the Canaanites. And that is, uh, the, people want to do this to, with the Bible that are opposed to it and want to say, well, you know, your Hebrew God is mean and he's killing all the Canaanites and just giving his, his people their land. Well, whose land? Who made it? He's, he's God in charge of the distribution. Uh, let's don't even get into the, the presuppositional apologetics part of this where why are you trying to use God's attribute of goodness to try to assess him independently of him where you don't even know what good is except that it comes from him. That's, that's its own you know, mistake people make. But, but let's also talk about this. If you want to be sympathetic to what God is saying, read it how he says. The dispossessing of the Canaanites is for the removal of the wickedness of multi-generational child sacrifice in, um, in a phallic cult, in a sexual, religious, orgiastic cult to uh, false gods at the behest of demons. That's what the removal of the Canaanites was. It wasn't just God preparing a place for his children that he had promised them. It was also the removal of evil and the forestalling of future generations of this Canaanite practice. And that's a lot of the, the historical context of what's going on in the ancient Near East and the biblical world. I would reference that fantastic um, adventure story uh, that nobody should probably ever watch for its gory historic depictions of human sacrifice called Apocalypto. What was going on in the Americas before the conquistadors came over um, was not the noble savage. It was not, as Rousseau thought, people are good and living in villages and in peace and gathering and uh, eating bean sprouts. No, um, it was, a lot, for a lot of people here, it was hell on earth. And I'm not saying things got better with the advent of the Europeans, except that they brought the gospel. And uh, eventually they brought the gospel in a solid way that was actually Jesus died for your sins and that's the only way you can receive eternal life and you can't get it from the church, you have to get it from Christ. But historical um, interest aside, um, God's wrath is always happening where God's deliverance is happening. 
And I showed you that with the Canaanites and the, and the conquest. And the most explicit way to show you that is the one person who receives God's wrath on behalf of all of us. God so loved you that he gave his son. And what it, that means is that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. And that is the wrath of God unrestrained on the person of our Savior. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And God poured out his wrath, the cup Jesus asked, if it could be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, let your will be done. He took this cup of the divine wrath of the Father on our sins in our place, and that is the wrath. So where is the deliverance? The cross is the deliverance. He saved us from our sins. So when you see wrath, look for deliverance. When you see deliverance, remember, generally in a world that is corrupted by sin and Satan and this dark frame that we're in, you have to look when you see deliverance. There will be some wrath that is providing it. And that's so much we see in this prophecy from Isaiah. In verse 1, going verse by verse, looking in some detail at Isaiah 26, 1 through 6, I have to say that uh, Isaiah never ceases to be difficult because it's poetry, many obscure words are used because we're, he's a poet and he's got his thesaurus out and he's, he's using words that you don't come across very often, so that's always fun. And uh, verse 3 is what we're really going to wrestle with because it's one of the toughest things I've ever tra- tried to translate in Hebrew. And uh, boy, did we clean it up when we, get, when we said... Uh, that will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Well, we'll look at that in, in detail and hopefully come away richer for having done so. And that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. In that day of God's deliverance in the coming um, kingdom. A city of strength, literally Lanu for us, uh, could be translated as ours. Um, a, uh, a city of, let's see right here. A city of strength, Lanu for us is what they sing. Salvation, an interesting word, Yeshua, Yeshua is how you say that. It's a feminine noun, and many abstract concepts in Hebrew are feminine nouns, like righteousness, tzedakah. They are often chokhmah, wisdom is a feminine noun, and Yeshua, salvation, is a feminine noun. And this is what you get from the verb yasha, to save or to deliver or to help. When you nominalize it, it becomes Yeshua and it's salvation. And this is not the name of our Savior because this is a feminine noun. The name of our Savior is a shortened, perhaps, form of Yehoshua, Joshua, built on the same root, Yasha. And Joshua's name is Yehoshua in Hebrew, and it means salvation. And guess how the rabbis translated that into Greek when they said, well, there are no Y's in Greek. So how will we bring Yehoshua in Joshua chapter 1 in the Septuagint from Hebrew Yehoshua into Greek? Do you know what they said? Jesus, I-E-S-O-U-S, the name constantly uh, attributed to our Savior in the inspired Greek New Testament in the Gospels. Our Savior's name is Jesus in Greek. And that's how you would transliterate or bring over Yehoshua into Greek. When someone says, well, his name is Yeshua. Well, yeah, there is a shortened form we find in later um, uh, Second Temple, toward the end of the Bible, Judaism. There's Joshua the high priest, and sometimes he's called Yeshua. But it's not this word, Yeshua. It's not the feminine noun for salvation. It's a shortened diminutive, like going from Michael to Mike, Yeshua, as opposed to Yehoshua. But the whole name would be Yehoshua. But since we don't have any New Testament scriptures in Hebrew, listen, let me say it again. Since we absolutely do not have any New Testament scriptures inspired by the Spirit of God and the pens of the the, the Christian of Christ apostles in Hebrew, we have to deal with Greek. So when someone tells you you have to worship God in the name that's given above every name, that the name of Yeshua, and you have to say that name instead of what Matthew wrote in Greek, Jesus, when someone tells you that, you just say, eh, we have a whole Bible in Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, and you can call him Jesus too. You can also call him Jesus in English. And so th- there's a big fight about this because people get hung up on silly things, and that's because we're hobbits. We're silly people. 
and we need to get out of, out of our house a little bit and go hunt some dragons or something to really step up a little bit and stop being so petty and provincial and silly. So anyway, uh, this name, Yeshua, is the word for salvation. It's not a name. It's the word for salvation. And um, it means it, it is the thing that he will sheath, he will set or establish um, uh, for us. Salvation he will establish is my translation, walls, homoth, walls, and a rampart. So this is what God is going to do. He's going to build the city. He's going to reestablish the city gates. He's going to fortify and put people into a strong position. And this is imagery. This is, this is poetic language to help you feel secure. If you're in a city with the gates torn off like Samson, then your, your trousers are down. You're in one of, those, um, one of those gowns in the hospital. You're exposed and it's, you don't feel secure at all. You feel insecure. Get me into that hospital bed with all those layers. Now, I'm, okay, that's a little better if I'm in one of those ridiculous gowns, right? This is, this is the idea of security and fortification. If your city is open, then it can be, it can be invaded. It can be defeated. You can be uh, uh, murdered. And so the idea is that in his deliverance, he's going to establish security. Open the gates. So we've got a fortified place of the, of the kingdom. Open the gates. And let it enter who? The goy, the goy, the goy tzaddik, the righteous goy, or the righteous nation. And it says, doesn't say this, it says a righteous nation. The word goy is often considered to be uh, a reference to Gentiles and, well, non-Jewish people, goyim. But um, that word has a technical sense. It means national entities. It means a group of people in one nation. And uh, so everybody that's not Jewish is goyim in the sense that they're the others. They're the other nations. But sometimes Israel is called a goy because it's a nation. And in that sense, in that technical use of it. And so you have to be careful about assuming um, any kind of, um, of a chauvinism when you hear the word goy. But it's a righteous nation. Let it enter into this coming fortified kingdom and this righteous nation is described as shamer, uh, a participle. I'm taking as um, substantival one who shamar, one who guards amunim, faithfulness. One who guards and, and is careful about being faithful with the things of God. Not just trusting in him, but as a consequence of trusting him, doing what he, what he wants, being pleasing to him, the word faithfulness. So this is, this is who it's for. This is who the kingdom is for. And this is what we're expecting and anticipating in God's deliverance of his people. Now in verse 3 in the King James, I'll just read it in Hebrew. Yetzer, Samuk, Titzor, Shalom, Shalom. Ki vaka batuach, batuach. That's the Hebrew, and I'm sure that's super edifying. Uh, for all of us. And no, I'm not speaking in tongues, but I do, I do have an interpretation. All right, so the King James saith, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Beautiful language, beautiful diction, and an incredibly free-making paraphrase of what you have in the Hebrew. And most of my preparation for tonight has been on this verse uh, you might have memorized this. We just sang it. We're going to continue to sing it. It's a marvelous uh, refrain. And these words are absolutely true. And I'm not certain they're the best paraphrase of what Isaiah is saying. And I think those can both be true at the same time. But let me show you what I mean. And um, I approach this with fear and trembling because one of our favorite memory verses. This is the thing about memory verses. As you get one verse out of a passage, you're like, oh, that's the one. And you quote it, you memorize it, and it helps you through a hard time. And you're trusting in God through the word that you've put in your heart. And that's the right thing to do. But I've always been enriched, beloved, by getting into the context of my memory verses. I've told you this so many times. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. And you're telling yourself that in sixth grade in math class because math is starting to get hard for me in sixth grade. I'm starting to really like fight it. And it's, ah, oh, and that verse, he cares for you. And so you're struggling, but you're trusting him. You're claiming that and, and it's helpful. And you, your walk with God is strengthened by that. 
And then you're sitting in, uh, in your study 30 years later and you read it in its context and it's talking after speaking to the elders in 1 Peter 1, 5, 1 through 4 about the younger men responding and submitting to their elders and then for everybody to submit themselves under the mighty hand of God so they promote you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. And the, the topic that is really going on there is about saving your life from the horror of insignificance, which is the lot of all human beings that will not break down and humble themselves before God. You are doomed to insignificance, eternal insignificance of your life's works. You're wasting your life if you don't break yourself down before God is what 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 is saying. And God doesn't want that for you. And so what am I saying? I'm saying that one verse helped me so much, but as I grew into it, what it's doing in its context I was super enriched by it and continue. It becomes, was a life verse, and now it's perhaps the life verse when we want to consider a holy ambition. All right. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Let me run this down with you really quickly. You start with a noun, and it is the word used in Genesis 6-5 for the intentions of man's heart that were on evil continually. It's the word intention. It's a mental process word. It is not the mind, but what happens in it, probably. And it's a pretty rare word. I think it happens eight or nine times in the Hebrew scriptures. But we're talking about mental processes. That's a really slippery concept to hang on to, like the word concept. Like I tried to use the word conception to translate it, but that'd be a problem in this time and age. The word conception means something else. I can't conceive of using that. It's inconceivable. All right, so that will keep him in perfect peace. It starts with this word mind, often translated mind, which would probably be, yetzer would probably be intention, inclination. I've, I've used intention because of Genesis 6-5 again. And then you get a, a thing I don't run into every day, which is a, a cow passive participle. And I think what happened was somebody saw a K here on the end and said, that's the pronoun, and it means you. But it isn't a pronoun. This is the word samak, S-M-K. It isn't a pronoun on the end, so there is no you stabilizing. It doesn't happen in the verse. This is the participle for being firm or stable, and it's passive. So most of the scholars are saying this is used as an adjective to, to, to modify this word. So firm inclination. A firm inclination. And now we have God doing something, second person verb, natsar, to keep, or uh, you will, um, <clears throat> you will uh, keep, natsar. And then, the, did everybody see in the pink that it's the same word twice? Shalom, shalom. Now you can't read Hebrew, but you can see this squiggle is the same as that squiggle and all that. It's the same two words. It says peace, peace. So if we bring it into English, an attention being firm, you will preserve peace, peace. That's what he says in Hebrew in terms of, the, and so mm, I got to make something with that. And that's what's happened. Everyone has a paraphrase of this verse. An intention being firm, you will preserve peace, peace. You might not be surprised to know that I'm just going to try to take exactly what it says and identify object of verb with, uh, the, with the order of the verb. So I think God is preserving the firm intention in perfect peace. And I'll show you why I think that in a minute. Then now this is more straightforward. Four, key four, in you, baka, in you, baka, in you. See, this is this K on the end. They saw this K on the end, and I think they said that's a pronoun, but it wasn't. It was a, a, a ver, a, one of the three letters in the verb. In you, now y'all might, have anyone ever heard the word batach for faith? Batach? Batach is a, one of the two words for faith or trust in God in the Hebrew scriptures. Aman is the other one in the, in the Hithil stem. And this, this is a word for reposing strong faith or trust in someone. And again, it's a, it's a verb that's another cow passive participle. Lord, why did Isaiah hit me with two cow passive participles in the same verse? And he doesn't tell me the answer. Um, but maybe after I sleep on it, maybe I'll wake up and my brain will have come up with something. But anyway, um, this is, this is, I'm translating it is trust reposed because it's a passive participle for faith, for trusting. And so in you is trust reposed. So this is my interlinear, wooden interlinear translation of this beloved verse. And some of you are like, I just, that's like taking the, the, the chocolate 
the chocolate bunnies out of Easter, you know, that we, there's just nothing, nothing that's not even worthwhile. But it really is, as we'll see in a moment. An intention of being firm, you will preserve in perfect peace for in you as trust reposed is, an, is not good English yet. It's still just in Hebrew order, and I'll try to paraphrase it in a moment. But let me let you hear other translations because everyone's been struggling with this. And what a lot of people have done is they've just kind of punted and said, King James sounds great. And it really does. It's magnificent, but I don't think we're wrestling with it like we need to. In the Wycliffe translation, which I am recently became aware is largely translated from the Vulgate, it's Wycliffe going from Latin to English with some Greek and Hebrew helps. But Wycliffe says, the old error <sighs> jied away, I think goes away, taken away. Thou shalt keep, uh, 1380s, this is old English, not middle English, not Chaucer, this is before Chaucer, we're still, we're almost speaking German still, okay? Thou shalt keep, everybody say keep, peace, peace. So he just translated shalom, shalom, okay? For in thee, Lord, we hand hoped. For in you we've hoped. And so he's taken that participle and turned it into a finite verb, we have, and put a first-person pronoun in it, we've hoped. And that is a lot of paraphrasing to do that. And it might be right. Darby said in 1890, thou wilt keep in perfect peace the mind stayed on thee, for he confideth in thee. And so he, he adopted the paraphrase of the King James NIV 84, which is the NIV to read, it turns out. If you're going to use an NIV, the reason is because of what they do with Hebrew poetry, especially they're super scholarly in Hebrew in the Old Testament. So uh, NIV is not, a, is not a thing to throw out just because there's the dispute about the New Testament uh, underlying text. NIV has some value, uh, but it recognizes it is generally a paraphrase. He said, they said, you'll keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast. See, the firm thinking, the firm inclination because for he trusts in you. So they've got um, the passive participle for trust. They've just turned into a, 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 an active verb. Just whew, active verb out of the passive participle. We could do that. Um, but it's a paraphrased Bible, so that, that they do a lot, a lot of that. Holman Christian Standard, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. And I have no idea how they got dependent out of the verse in the Hebrew, and I could probably ask them. Um, but uh, I love this translation. It's got a lot to recommend it. The ESV, based on the RSV, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, which is an update of how the King James says it. And finally, the New English translation you all might not be as familiar with. This is done in 2000, 2001 by the professors, the Hebrew and Greek professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. They called it the Net Bible or the New English Translation. And I would never use this as my pulpit Bible, but I use it in my study constantly because there's nothing else like it for its footnotes. They have uh, translator notes in every verse with every question right there. And so the footnotes are longer than the actual text of the Bible. And I, I recommend it in electronic format. But the New English Translation Bible is a good translation. Um, and uh, they get into some that you, com you keep completely safe. That's peace, peace, completely safe. The people who maintain their faith for they trust in you is the way they paraphrase it. And that sounds really different from anything else we've read, just like mine does. And intention being firm, you will preserve in perfect peace, for in you is trust reposed. Let's paraphrase that into something that sounds like an English verse. You will keep in perfect peace a firm intention, because the trust of the person having the firm intention is reposed in you, or because he trusts in you. That's my paraphrase. I think that's what Isaiah is saying in 26.3. You will keep in perfect peace a firm intention, because... because Trust is reposed in you. And I think that there is a great bit of doctrine, a great bit of how it works between us and God, anthropology together with theology proper in that statement. Let me unpack it. You will keep in perfect peace a firm intention that the person has because that person with that intention has reposed his trust in you. I think that's what Isaiah is talking about. And what's he talking about in context? Everybody wants the kingdom. Everybody wants peace. Everyone wants security in Mount Zion. And they want God to rule. And they want the nations to prosper in their righteousness, in their righteous love of God. And that's a good, firm intention. And God preserves it. First of all, I want to say our best desires do not start with ourselves, but with God. 
Our best desires do not start with ourselves, but with God. Now that is a thought that some of you may never have had, that your best desires start with God. Well, I don't think about God when I think about what I want. I just think about what I want. What's wrong with that? Well, you're not God. And this is the biblical doctrine of wanting. God is better at wanting than I am or you are. Infinitely better. Wanting involves knowing things, so you know what to want, right? Our kids don't know what they might want because we haven't exposed them to all the options of the things that everybody seems to want. And that's called loving your children. Little babies want a penny and not a dollar because they don't know. And that's how we are. We're petty. We don't understand. But as we come to understand, knowledge helps you be a better at wanting. Well, if wanting depends on knowledge, then let's let God, with his infinite knowledge, be the best at wanting. But that's not all. He doesn't just want with infinite knowledge. He wants with infinite righteousness. And you and I don't. We have limited we have limited human good righteousness. We have our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight righteousness. We have the wicked heart of man with its version of righteousness, which isn't the righteousness of God at all. So God's wanting is infinitely righteous and God's wanting is infinitely knowledgeable. And then let's talk about what God wants for us, infinite love. You don't even love yourself anywhere near how God loves you. So I want, I want, I want, I just want for me. And you don't know that God wants better for you than you can want for yourself because he loves you more than you can possibly love anyone, more than you can love yourself. So again, the doctrine of wanting, God's better at it. So the best desires do not start with ourselves, but with God. Second, in Psalm 37.4, that's the point, Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's a riddle. It's a riddle. Some people think that it's a transaction with God. Okay, I'm desiring you, Lord. Now give me my thing that I want. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, if A, then you will have B. If you delight in the Lord, you will get what you want, which is him. If you want God, you'll get God. If you want a relationship with God, you'll have a relationship with God. That's what it's not a bait and switch. It's not a do your devotion so that then you can have your, your playtime. That's not it. It's love God, desire God, seek after God, and he will give you the desires of your heart, which are your delight, him. So third, our righteous intentions are not secured by our own integrity, but God's faithfulness. We have righteous intentions that we're seeking. I started last time, last Wednesday, I don't know if you remember, we started with Psalm 101 and read what David said about his commitments. I'm going to walk in righteousness. I'm not going to put an evil, un, any evil thing before my eyes. I'm going to seek after the things of God. He's got all these commitments that he's making that he wants to live out. We're careful about this. In our church culture, this is something that I've inherited from my pastor and those that came before him. Be real careful about, you know, listen to what Jesus says about promises and, and, and oaths. I swear by heaven, God's abode or earth, God's footstool. You know, say yes. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Do you promise? I just said, yeah, what I said, I, I meant. But when we say and commit and say we're going to do something by way of commitment, there's no getting around that nothing ever happens in our lives without doing that kind of initial step. You never get anywhere without saying, I'm going to do X. David, will you come be the pastor of Preston City Bible Church? We had a vote today, and whatever the 17 or 25 or whatever people that came to the meeting, we had 24 yeses and one abstention or whatever it was. You know, know what, who's keeping record? Anyway, um, <laughs> will you be the pastor of our church? I will pastor your church if God so provides. And we will be there as soon as possible. That's May of 2000 or April of 2007. We're here in June after graduation of 2007. And I committed to do this, right, for one example. I'm looking at a room full of committed people. Some of you feel like you should be committed based on the commitments that you've made. But the greatest example of this that you can't get out of biblically, according to Matthew 19, is marriage. 
Marriage is one of these places that even those that say, well, I don't really think we're supposed to make promises before God because, you know, we're, we're, we're weak and we won't do what we said and we'll, 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 I won't do it again, Lord, but then we do it again. Good advice that you don't make commitments that you can't keep. But we all get up and say, I will be the husband or wife I'm supposed to be until I die. We all commit to that. And we should commit to that. And we should commit our way to the Lord, trust also in him, and we'll do it. We should seek to do the things that um, God wants for us. We should take the first step and say, I'll do it. In 2 uh, Corinthians 8 and 9, you have the great passage on giving. God loves a cheerful giver. The whole pretext for that is they made pledges. The church in Corinth said they would give, the people said they would give such and such for the relief of the, the, the press saints in, in, in Judea. And Paul's taking up a collection. He's going around off, and he's saying, give what you committed without there being an issue. And, and that's, that's the whole premise that's going on is they made pledges in their giving. And so Paul has a sense of what's, what to expect when they, you know, how many bags to bring or whatever, how many oxen to hire for the, for the ride back. I'm just saying there is a lot in the Bible about our commitments and our righteous intentions. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Or I'm going to study something in detail, an even better thing to do. I'm going to study the text this year in detail. And I'm going to um, spend time in the Word. Or the things that you commit to, you know, we make New, New Year's resolutions. I, I joke with you about New Year's reservations. You have one right here in the New, new Cushions here at Preston City Bible Church. You have a New Year's reservation right here. Be here when you can. And here you are on Wednesday night. Um, and this is not something that you do as a believer in Christ from, the own, from your own um, willpower. Richard Simmons in the 80s. It's about willpower. It's it, for losing weight, right? Um, it's not willpower. It's your commitment and your faith in God that enables you to take each step within that commitment. So let's do some marriage counseling. How does the Apostle Paul break out marriage that will be successful? He tells husbands they have work to do, and here's your responsibility in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33. And he tells wives, here are your responsibilities in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And he says, this is what the woman is supposed to do, and this is what the man is supposed to do, and these are empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, and everybody is selflessly loving as Christ has directed because we're serving Christ, right? That's marriage. So we get up before the pastor who's helping us make a proclamation before God and the witness of these here gathered dearly beloved. And we say, I will until I die. I will take this next step. And we're committing our lives to be married. Second most important decision you ever make. It's permanent according to the scriptures. And you can disobey Jesus Christ and who said, whom God has joined together, let no man separate. You can disobey him. And the Bible does know of such a thing as divorce. And it's a real thing. But you're not supposed to. Jesus said, don't. And we could talk about that in more detail, but the summary on divorce is don't. Okay? So when you're getting married, this is what I tell young people that want to come together and talk about getting married, do some premarital counseling. I try to tell them not to get married because you're stuck. And once you're stuck, you're stuck, and you're just so stuck, and you don't have any right to buyer's remorse, and you can't think that way. You think, since I'm married, and since I'm staying married until one of us dies, we're going to make it go. We're going to, I'm going to do as much as it depends on me. That one's settled. I'm not even going to ask. That, that door is welded shut like they're welding people into their homes in China. You know, I'm, I, I cannot get out of that, of that door. That one's settled. What else am I going to do? And, and that's how you live. You make this commitment. But you don't carry it through by willpower or by the force of your great, vast integrity. Our integrity without Christ is nothing. But in Christ... In faith, walking with him, we're stabilized. We're living in that fortified city. We can do what we said we would do. And that's your only source of strength. So our righteous intentions are not secured by our integrity, but by God's faithfulness. So fourth, security is always from God. God is going to keep in perfect peace with success and safety. The intentions that you bring to him as you trust in him is the message of verse 3 of Isaiah 26. So we proceed in faith in God, the all, only author of our security. So that's the problem of marriage is how do I know it's going to work out? Well, you don't. How do I know that this woman I'm, I'm choosing as a young person, I don't know anything except what looks good to be Samson. 
I'm choosing this person. We get, get along, seems to go well. Um, she wants to get married for life, she thinks, and so I want to get married for life. How do I know this is going to end well? How do I know she's going to be able to raise my kids? How do I know that he is going to be able, how would a young lady know that he's going to be able to, to, to be a steadfast provider, protector, trainer, equipper how does he have this in him to do this to grow into this person and so some say well don't get married till you're 30 you don't know anything till you're 30 well that's true one of the ways you get to know something is you get married you grow you learn it's like it's like accelerated development when you get married and so but but well you're gonna you don't know what you want you don't know what you like well it's too late when you're 30 uh now those that aren't married and you're 30 i'm not saying don't i'm just saying that's not the best advice in my view Right? The question is, what stabilizes your commitments? What is the basis of your integrity? And a firm intention will be stabilized in perfect peace by the God that you're trusting in. And that's the only way. And so the question for a young lady looking at a man that you might like to marry, if you're a Christian woman, is not only, not only is he a believer, does he, did he sign on the bottom of the, the Gideon thing that he's a believer? Okay, we got a signature. He's a believer, I get married. Instead of doing that, if you have a believing man, you should say, is he going to batach? Is he going to repose his faith in God and walk with him and trust him? Is his faith going to grow over time? And ask that question. Do I see that happening? Do I see that in his life? Am, am I, is this something I should expect of this person objectively, honestly? And the best you could do is before God is an act of worship. Um, make a decision based on, uh, I, I think, yeah, I think he's going to, he's in faith now, and I think he's going to walk in faith with God, and that will secure his integrity. The question I challenge you with, with Isaiah 26.3, is what do you want to do with your life? How can your intention be secure? What do you want to do with your life? Ask yourself that question. Don't just go through the motions and say, well, life is making breakfast after, well, first you get up, right? And then, of course, you make breakfast. Sequence is important. Put on your shoes and then your socks, right? Um, I'm going to just go through the motions of life, and I know how to get to work. And, um, you know, I gassed up the car yesterday so I wouldn't be late to work today. And the, the little humdrum details of life, I'm not talking about that. You want to walk by the Spirit in all of those things, but what do you want to do with your life? Because the Bible's pretty specific as you go forward in the Scriptures from Isaiah. It's pretty specific about what God wants you to do. I'll give you a couple of things. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is how Peter concludes all the revelation we get from him in his Second Peter 3. Grow in the grace and knowledge. So one thing you want to do is grow spiritually according to your knowledge and walk with Christ. What's another thing God wants for you? What's another absolutely certain thing he wants for you to do? He wants you to grow into a mature expression of your spiritual gift because you have one. He wants you absolutely without question to walk every step by the Spirit. But I say walk by the Spirit in the imperative mood, and it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is what God wants for you, a Holy Spirit walk, empowered spiritual life where you're growing in the Word spiritually so that you're able to have a mature expression of your spiritual gift. And I know that that expression of that spiritual gift is for love, for you to love the brethren, because the great passage on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, in the center of it is the passage par excellence on what Christian love is. Because the spiritual gifts are not to, to make ourselves feel important. They're not to show off that we can speak in tongues or interpret tongues, as Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians. The spiritual gifts are special enablements for us to love one another and build up the body of Christ according to what God wants because we love Him. And so these are some things we absolutely know God wants for us. And now we can talk about what all that spiritual growth and what all that um, the spiritual gifts and what that walk by the Spirit in a spiritual life according to uh, God's Word looks like in the specific task that the head has given the body. Christ is our head and we are the body of Christ. And what is the mission that Christ has as the head for his body? And it is to make disciples of all the nations. In whatever capacity you can, get your shovel or your rake and get busy because we are all working on this same project. These are the things we absolutely know God wants for us. What do you want to do with your life? Make an intention. I want to grow spiritually. I want to be a mature believer and think mature Christian thoughts about God and love him in a mature way. Baby love is marvelous. The love of little children for their parents as they grow. We get to have this still. We've still got a little, the, the little guy at home, and it's just so delightful when the mood hits him and you get some affection. It's magnificent. But it's nothing like a mature, committed, filled with God's integrity love. 
It's nothing like that where you, you who have grown children, I just can only imagine, where they uh, love you in a mature way and you have rapport with them as you would with a friend and it becomes like a close friendship. What an amazing thing God designed. And you just think of the Father and the Son in the Trinity. The relationship between father and son, and, and it's a mysterious thing, but that's, that's how God reveals himself as father and son. And, and uh, so I want to grow spiritually so I can love God in a mature way. Like commit to that, want that, go for that, and then trust God as you go through it because he'll stabilize. He'll keep in perfect peace that firm intention. Proverbs 16.9, the, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps is the, is the wisdom of walking in faith. Um, and making our firm commitments. As we close down in verse 4, trust in Yahweh forever, he says, for in Yah, Yahweh, we have an everlasting rock. He says it twice. He says the name twice, but Yah, the shortened name for Yahweh, Yahweh. He says it twice, and I don't know why, but it's poetry. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has thrown down, just like in the end of chapter 25, the dwellers on high, the inaccessibly high city. He uses the word uh, shachak in the, in the hithil for throwing down. He has laid it low, shafal, another word for uh, to come down or to become low, but now causative hithil, he has caused it to become low. He's laid it low down to the ground. And now a third word, naga, he has thrown it down again in the hithil to the dust. So this is the destiny of the strong city, and it directly contrasts with trust in the Lord forever. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. The foot, and this is the, pre- the table in the presence of mine enemies. The foot will trample it, the feet of the poor. The foot will trample the ragel in a pausal accent. It will, tr- it will tread it, the, the foot, uh, this, this uh, thrown down city. And then the ragle, the feet of the poor, the ani, <clears throat> the footsteps of the helpless. This thing keeps happening. This thing keeps happening in this poem where you have God's great deliverance and glory and then man's, um, and then, and then that, that which is on the rece- receiving end of God's wrath. We sang it earlier. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee is a firm intention that God can secure for you if you'll trust him. Walking with God in faith is the only way you can say this and mean it. I was raised in one way and theologically, not by my parents so much, but by those that that were training me theologically to say, be real careful about committing yourself to the Lord. Like we were scared to sing the song, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Because it seems so trite that the little kids are saying it. They don't even know him, but they're singing they love Jesus. Um, Look, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. It's something that I'll step out on faith and say, and God, you have it. You take my life. Who is not willing to make that commitment? Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. This is what God wants for you. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Uh, Francis Havergal is referring to how beautiful are the feet that bring the gospel. To let my feet be yours for your service. This is going through the whole person. It's almost like the armor of God in Ephesians 6, but it's talking about what the armor is covering. Take my voice and let it sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. You had me till there. I, I, was, I was on board and then it was silver and gold. Sorry. I, nope. Can't, I can't. I can't. Take my moments and my days. You know, there's something worth more than money. It's your time. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Do you want this? Is this an intention that you desire? Is this the desire of your heart? God will give it to you. You can have this. You can live like this. This can be you. It shouldn't be, according to the flesh. You don't deserve to be this way, but you can be this way. In fact, you're called to be. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Jesus taught us constantly to pray according to God's will. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my heart. It is uh, said that twice. Take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. So are you worshiping him? Are you like the woman with the 
precious nard that washed, washed our Savior's feet with her hair. Judas is indignant and says we could have used that money for the poor. And Jesus said this was the right use of this money. She'll be honored forever, even right now as we speak of her, for doing this. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. This is the way it looked in the Truth magazine in 1876 when James Hall Brooks published it um, for, uh, for the Christianity Today of their time, which is a fantastic uh, periodical, which I would love to see us republish since it's open source, it's public domain now. I'd love to see this thing come back out. It's, it's kind of rough now in its microfish form, but you can live this way. You, every one of you, I, we can be this way but only through faith. And I don't mean trusting in Christ for the first time and becoming a Christian, then inevitably you'll be this way. I mean a life step by step in faith. God will establish your firm intention because you trust in him. Our Father, thank you for eternal life. We can live it right now, which is to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And I pray that all of us, everyone that hears my voice would be equipped to know you in every step, to know the Lord in all our ways, to know you, that you would straighten our paths. Show us what it means to rejoice in humbling ourselves before you and knowing that this life is not our own, it is for you. Father, if there's anyone here that's bound up in this and struggling with this, break the logjam, Father. Break it up. Help us live in that freedom and that peace and that security of trust in you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.